0: Good morning. It's good to be back with you. My name is uh, Jeremy Grinnell, and uh, I'm the guy they call when somebody has a baby. <laughs> so no, my uh, frontline community church is our home, and so I, I spend a lot of time sort of traveling around to the zero collective churches when they have gaps like that. And uh, this morning, I would like to add my congratulations to uh, John and Lindsay uh, on the birth of their little baby, uh, Eden Louise. So I'm John will be back next week. So you will uh, see him looking tired and afraid, I'm sure, but (laughs) pleased. Um, So he he contacted me and said, you know, I'm going to need a I need another week. I'm going to need a week off, you know, after the, after the baby, comes. I said, sure, sure. When you know, what do you need? Any anything? So when he goes, how about next Sunday? (laughs) Oh, okay. So here I am. Wee. So and uh, he told me that uh, we'd be working on the uh, series be a series on prayer from the Lord's Prayer that I'd be working on the first line of the Lord's Prayer, uh, to which I said, "Great, that's wonderful. The teacher in me likes to uh, I like the first sermon of a series. I like the, you know the whole setup and the background. I like, oh, that's, I just love to do that kind of thing." He went, "Oh no, 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 we already did the first sermon, the first message last week. Uh, we did the second line of the Lord's Prayer, so you've got to go back and catch us up and do the first line to which I want to say are you underslept already or what no it's fine. It all works out. This is what happens when you have a baby. They you know you make things work. So Pastor Brian was here last week talking about the second line of the Lord's prayer and uh, we're going to kind of catch up and set it there. And he did a fine job last week in giving you context and talking about you know what was going on when Jesus' disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And then Jesus gave him this model prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer, but it's kind of more technically a prayer for the disciples, the disciples' prayer. So that's what we are going to pick up today. And since his introduction to it was, was more than adequate, I feel like I can just sort of jump in and uh, we'll see where we go today. As I said, the first... Uh, what we're covering is the, this first line, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or as I learned it in the King James as a child, hallowed be thy name, means the same thing. You notice Jesus has opened this prayer. He's teaching his disciples to pray, and he opens up the prayer with a kind of a salutation. Uh, 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 speaking of, you know, to you, O God, our Father in heaven. And we often begin prayers much the same way, even, even today. You know, one of the first uh, prayers children are taught is to begin a prayer with what? Like, dear Jesus, you know, dear Jesus, thank you for this food. Um, we adults or others often, uh, dear Heavenly Father, things like that. Um, we, we often uh, open prayers with salutations, but I think we often do it really out of more habit, you know, if you were taught, as I was a little too, when I was young, to write letters, you always begin with a salutation, dear so-and-so. And I have a feeling that often our salutations and prayers are, are merely that. They don't really contribute much. I mean, you could really strike them, usually strike them right off our prayer and it wouldn't really change anything, much as you can strike them off the top of a letter. Still write, you still write letters these days? Well, you know, you have, you know, the salutation there at the top, dear Bob, to whom it may concern, you know, dear Walmart, I'm writing to complain about, etc. And you can tell that those really don't contribute much. They just, you can sort of throw them away. Well, if we were to do that here in Jesus' prayer, we would actually be, uh, it would be under a deep misunderstanding of what Jesus is actually doing because salutation can, doesn't always, but can mean a great deal. As you can see using the, again, the, the analogy of the letter, you can see these two, uh, here are two possible salutations to a letter that you might put, you know, one, the first one, to whom it may concern. But the second one, my dearest and everlasting love. Those are two very different salutations. They mean very different things. The first one is rather irrelevant. doesn't really say much at all. But the second, the second one sets the tone for the letter, right? It actually communicates a deep truth and and gives you sort of the emotional summation of everything you're about to read in the letter right there at the beginning. Now, in the first, you have no idea what's coming. You don't even know what, what sort of letter this is going to be. Is it a political survey? Is it a letter of complaint? A job application? We're contacting you about your car's extended warranty. could be pretty much anything, but not the second one. The second one almost writes itself. You know exactly what's coming. It's going to be a love letter. There's going to be all the declarations and things of that sort. You feel what's coming next. Well, listen again to how Jesus opens the prayer. Our Father in heaven. It leans more toward the second style than the first because what it reflects is a great deal of intimacy. It's a it's a it, it brings us into a very very dear relationship. So when Jesus begins the prayer this way, whatever else may be going on, Jesus is trying to remind us that our relationship to God actually mirrors his own. Remember who is Jesus? He's the son of God who's taken to himself a true and full human nature and is now Walking through the world on his way to the cross to redeem humanity, everything here that he is doing is as a, is, a, is as a testimony to his father's desire to redeem the world. And now he's telling us, he uses this salutation, your relationship to, to this father in heaven is the same as mine. You'll notice he does not say, you know, my father in heaven. You're, you know, to pray to my father as if your father is someone else, you know, and you just sort of, you know, there's this difference between us. Nor does he use the opposite. You know, well, you should pray your father in heaven. See, I'm the son of God, so it kind of means something different when I say it. So you can say your father, and then I'll just talk to God on on my own. No, 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 no. He reminds us that it is our father. You might even say Jesus' preferred pronouns (laughs) are our. It's a pronoun of solidarity. It draws us in. We are, in fact, Christ's brothers and sisters. And our access to this Father in heaven is the same as his. Why does he use the word father? Well, frankly, the word father is used for God in heaven all, all, all through the scriptures. You know, the Old Testament used it to use the father of Israel, and all sorts of things. But why, why this constant analogy, this constant picture of the God in heaven as father? Well, I mean, lots of reasons, but probably the one that's, that's important here is that the father-child relationship is, or is supposed to be, one of the deepest relationships that we would understand in our lives, in our human lives, that it describes the nature of our relationship to God. And Jesus, Jesus, Jesus talks about this much as, as the rest of the Scriptures does. You can think of Jesus' parables where He images God as Father frequently. You have a father who's in his house, wandering around, longing, waiting for his prodigal son to return, and then he sees him and runs out and embraces him. Another parable where you have a father who invites his two sons to go out into his vineyard and labor on his behalf, do work for him, and one agrees and one doesn't, and all of that. These are images of a father that Jesus is trying to communicate here images of care, protection, provision. You've already sung about these images today. That we come to God not as slaves seeking mercy from a master, not as employees seeking the approval of a boss. Not even as customers making demands upon a service worker. You know, give me what I want and now because the customer is always right. Not at all. No, we come, the image we're given is that we come as children, approaching a loving parent who deeply desires our flourishing and our good. That is the father that we approach in our prayers. Now, I have to pause there a minute because I do realize, and I'm sure Jesus did as well, that Analogies don't always work and don't always work for everybody. And they don't always work perfectly. Sometimes, sometimes it gets lost because our own experience gets in the way. Not everybody has or had a good relationship with their father. It's true. Analogies break down exactly at the point where the listener doesn't get the reference. I mean, I think about my kids when they come to show me the meme they think is funny on their cell hey, yeah, Look at this, it's hilarious. And I'm like, I don't get that. Why? Because I don't. I don't. I never watched that show. I don't. I don't get what the the cultural reference is, the analogy, whatever the humor is. They're trying. It's it's completely lost on me. Well, similarly, if if your relationship with your biological dad was <clears throat> problematic, it's very possible that this image will get lost on you. That it won't land the way it's supposed to. I mean, you've heard it. I certainly have heard it. Where a person will say, "If God is really a father, I want nothing to do with him whatsoever." why because my own biological father was a wretched human being and I want nothing to do with that well all I can say to you this morning if, if that's if that's where you're at if that's your story I am first of all I am sorry the fact that fathers and children in our world find themselves in adversarial or abusive or even abandonment types of relationships friends that's that's ultimately a result of the fall. It's the brokenness that's present in the world and in each one of us. It's, it's actually that kind of brokenness that Christ himself came to address on the cross. To bring reconciliation and healing to relationships like that. And I, I know they don't always happen. But, but if you're struggling with that image, that Jesus should address God and then invite us to address, address God as a Father in heaven, and that just doesn't work for you because of the the earthly father you had. Let me offer you one, one perspective on how you might be able to read this profitably. Is that in this prayer, what you are confronted with is not echoes of an earthly father, the earthly father you actually had, but rather the hope and the promise now of meeting the father you always needed the father you've always longed for, the father you should have had. That is what your father in heaven wishes now to be for you. So Jesus bids you to come, claiming that promise, not not that this father is going to be like the father you knew, but the reverse, that you're going to experience healing and restoration Of what it means, that you're meeting now a a true provider, caretaker, nurturer, compassionate, loving, strong, and kind. My friends, that's what the Father in heaven was to Christ guided, was present with all through the incarnation, raised him from the dead at the very end. It's an affirmation of this good Son, this beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and now reminds us that the Father wishes to be that for us too. Now, of course, there are differences. We are talking about a father in heaven, and we're going to have to come back to that language of being in heaven in a little bit. But for the moment, I think it's more important for us to just sort of roll on to the next piece of it and then see how this all fits together. Because the the rest of the line, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, if that salutation, if the first part of it draws us near to God, if it reminds us of this intimacy, a father in heaven who is interested in us, and near to us. Well, this first petition that Jesus bids us to, to pray, to hallow the name of God, actually kind of presses us in the other direction. Hallowed means is translated, you know, it means, it means holy, to make holy. In fact, the Lexham English Bible even does translate it this way, somewhat loosely to the point, our Father in heaven, may your name be treated as holy. This hallowing or, or holifying, if I can kind of create a word this morning, of the name of God, what it, what it, it doesn't underscore so much God's nearness, it's almost the opposite, what the poets call God's transcendence, or what the theologians often talk about as God's otherness, the great distance between the creature and the creator, that this name, this person, there's holiness there. And that has a, re- a reaction. We I mean, we have a reaction to that, and that's a reaction of distance because if there's one thing I know I am not, it is holy. But when Jesus says we're to hallow the name of God, we should understand that that's not just a me- uh, you know a metaphor for for God's name. It's it's actually a part of it's it's actually a a kind of speech called a metonymy. When you take a, a piece of a thing and you recognize it, the name of God, and you use it as kind of a substitute for the whole. So it's, that's what's really going on here. When you talk about the name being hallowed, it's, it's actually referring to God's whole person. We do this kind of stuff all the time in English. We talk about, oh, she captured my heart, right? Well, I mean, the heart is just, it's a small little piece. Of and I don't just mean this small little piece or even the, the physical organ. I mean the whole of me. It's all of me. And I'm using the word heart to represent that. Or when, you know, you talk, people talk about the British monarchy, you know, they, they talk about the whole institution and summing it up in one little piece of it. They call it the crown, and it stands for the whole of the monarchy. Or if you go to horse racing, you know, what do they say? You go to the track, right? Because that piece stands for the whole. Much the same thing is going on here. To hallow the name of God means that God is to be understood and acknowledged as holy. Well, what does holiness mean? I mean, we just have to keep stepping it back. If we're going to hallow the name of God or acknowledge its holiness, what are we saying? Well, holiness, often defined, and rightly so, holiness means to set apart, just to make unique, to to set apart. Now, we, I think we tend to think of or use the language of set apart probably in the opposite way it's it's usually meant. We tend to think of set up set apart as set aside, like, you know, I want to save a donut, the last donut in the box so the kids don't eat it, and so I'm going to set it aside and cover it and hide it in the cupboard so the kids don't eat it. But that's not what holiness means. Holiness actually almost means the opposite. The setting apart that holiness implies actually means a driving to the center, an establishment in the very center of things. It's set apart by being made, by being put in the middle. The language of hallowing you'll recognize because it's been used elsewhere in the Bible. You can go all the way back to the beginning. And in Genesis 1 and 2, you'll find out that God actually hallows something else in the creation week. There's something else in the creation week that we're told God hallows and makes holy. Anybody want to remember or guess what it is? Just me? Okay, that's fine. Remember the seventh day. God does this, creates this, creates this, creates this. And then the seventh day, God hallows it and makes it Holy. Now, what that does not mean is that God takes the seventh day of the week and sort of shoves it to the periphery and says, well, this is the least important day of the week. I have set it aside. No, rather what's supposed to happen is it is supposed to become the defining center of Adam and Eve's life, the organizing principle around all the rest of the days, the one day that gives all the rest of the days their ultimate meaning. So too when that one in seven, that one day a week in seven becomes, you know, when it enters into the life of Israel in the Mosaic law and becomes ensconced in all of those laws and it becomes called the Sabbath, Shabbat, the day of rest, six days you shall do your labor and, and all your work, but the seventh day is holy to the Lord. It does not mean that the Shabbat or the Sabbath in Israel was the least important day. It means the opposite. It was the defining central day, the day that made the Jewish people what they were, distinguished them from the nations, the call back to the true center of life, that you don't exist in this world just for the labor of your hands. That's not why God made you. Six days you do that, but then you come back to the center and what? You have rest. That's what God made you for. That's the defining thing. It's a thing that breathes life into all the others. You think you you can even go on. The holy tabernacle, the, the, the worship center in ancient Israel as they traveled through the desert. You know, it's made up of two rooms. It's called the holy place and the holy of holies. I mean, come on, it's right in the name. Where did they erect that when they would, you know, they tear it down and travel and then they'd have to put it back up again? Did they put it out at the edge of the camp? No, it was right in the middle. They would camp around the tabernacle. Why? Because it was the place of meeting. God would come and meet the chosen people right in the middle of things. That's what holiness does. It goes to the middle and defines the whole rest of life. So, I mean, of course, this begs a question for us this morning. It is this what's your center? We don't, I mean, I struggle, I'll admit, I struggle to think of Sunday as the organizing center of like the whole week drives towards it and then falls away from it. I mean, if you, you do what I do for a living or Pastor John does for a living and technically it's another work day, but it was intended to be a center for life. Now, we're not, we're here really to talk about Sabbath. We're not really here to talk about the tabernacle. We're here to talk about the fact that God uses this same word. Now, Christ uses this same word that the name of his father in heaven, that God's name should become the center. The thing that breathes life and meaning into everything that God's, God's identity in our life is not that of the periphery that we live our life as it is. And then we, you know, we'd give our token, our tithe to God on Sunday so that we can have the rather six days to ourselves. But that the whole of life should be taken up, with God's uh, God's name and purpose and identity established in the middle. Now here I have to pause again, because there's often a critique raised at this point. It's a, it's maybe you've had it yourself. It's like, well, why is God so concerned about being so adored? Why does God, what does it matter to God if, if we all do this? We come together here on this Sunday. We sang these songs of worship and holiness and acknowledgement of what, you know, Christ going to the cross and all the good works that God has done in history. What, is God vain? Does God need validation from me in order to be God? Is that why we have to do this? Well, I mean, this is a very old question and it's a very old answer and it's actually really straightforward. Um, when people raise it, it's, it's not really a big stumbling block at all. The answer has, it's been well known for a long time and it has two parts. First The honor that we give to God that Jesus is referring to here is not so much for God's benefit. It is something that justice simply demands. God is who God is, and this is the appropriate response to who God is. And secondly, that this honoring of God ultimately isn't for God's sake. It doesn't change God in any way. Who does it change? Me. When I acknowledge God, God's holiness and God's place as the center of life. God doesn't change. I do. What does this mean? Think, you can think of it this way. We actually have analogies for, for this in life. When you go into a courtroom, and God preserve you if you, if you do, um, but if you find yourself in a courtroom, you've got the judge sitting up there on, on the bench, right? And wh- how are you to refer to the judge? What is the judge's the appropriate response to the judge? You call the judge your honor, right? right? And God help you if you don't. Because, you know, bad things happen. Why do, we, why do we use that language, your honor? You don't know whether the person sitting up there, that man or woman, is actually honorable at all. You don't know if they're faithful in their marriage. You don't know if they're good to their kids. You don't know if they're, they're, they're just and kind to their subordinates and treat them with dignity. A lot of judges are simply elected. They got more votes than the, the other person did. And now they're your honor. Well, part of the recognition is you're not necessarily saying you're honored because you know this person is honorable. It's the position. It goes with the title. To be a judge is to warrant the language of honor, regardless of what your actual humanity is like behind the thing. It's the same as in the military, I'm told. You may hate the staff sergeant with the, the red-hot you know, passion of a thousand burning suns. He may be a wretched and jerk of a human being. <clears throat> you still salute him. Why? Because you're not saluting the wretched human being that is the staff sergeant. You're saluting the rank. The rank demands the respect. Even if the person who inhabits the office or the rank is an idiot. Well, if this is true even in human terms where we are dealing with fractured fallen people who become judges and fractured fallen people who become staff sergeants, if that's true even there, that we recognize that honor is due and an act of submission on my part to say it is required, how much more true when we're dealing with our Father in heaven who is good, holy, and just? How much more deserving? When we hallow God's name, when we recognize it and honor it as holy and recognize and confess God's centrality to life, when we do this, we're not giving God something God lacks. We're not doing it because God is somehow more God if we do this any more than the judge is more of a judge or the sergeant is more of a sergeant. We do this because it's a matter of justice. This is what God deserves. And when I do it, I am reminded of that. I discover my place here in this equation as well. When I give God his due. So how then does all this then teach us to pray? What does it say to us when we approach God in prayer? How does it change the way we do that? Well, there are, there's probably two things at work here. The first comes from the salutation. That our Father in heaven, you will remember, is a statement of, 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 of closeness, of intimacy. That it reminds us to come with boldness. That we come to a father who desires our good and our wholeness. And so we come with confidence, with courage, knowing that we are loved and welcome. We are bidden to make our requests to be heard and answered. Why? Because we have a good, good father. And yet you flip the coin over this first petition, the hallowing, the, the recognition of God's holiness pushes us the other direction. It gives us a sense of humility. It reminds us that we are small, dependent, fallen creatures in need of love and redemption. We come adoring God because of God's greatness, God's goodness, God's power, love, and glory, and we acknowledge God's authority over us and over the world. We come in prayer agreeing with God, not so that we may get God to do what we want, but that so we may learn how to do what God wants, so that we may be better children more loving children, to conform ourselves to God's will, not the other way around. So even here in these first two lines of the Lord, Lord's Prayer, we are given given this, this these two wonderful things. Come with boldness and recognize your place as you come. We are given both of these things. But it's not just the attitude that this informs. It also kind of informs the content of our prayers as well. As it tells us a bit of what we ought to pray. I told you we were coming back to... Uh, to the in heaven part. Well, here we are. Because here's, uh, here's the, the rest of the first part of the Lord's Prayer, which you recognize. Uh, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, which you talked about last week. And the next week you will talk about, I presume, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that final tag that's bolded there, on earth as it is in heaven. There's the heaven part again. Our Father in heaven. and here On earth as it is in heaven. The temptation will be, and it may even feel this way next week, because that tag is attached to your will be done, and you'll hear a sermon on all of that. The temptation will be to think that that's all it means. On earth, and as it is in heaven, refers merely to your will being done. As in, God, we want your will to be done where? Here. Well, how? With the same spontaneity and joy and freedom that it is already done in heaven. right? That's true. But most scholars are convinced that that tag at the end is supposed to be applied to each of the three lines. So it is also, as you heard last week, your kingdom is to come, to be manifested, to be made clear and known and visible. Where? Right here in our midst. With what sort of vividness? The same vividness that it's already exists in heaven that that glory may be seen here too. And to the point this week, where is God's name to be hallowed? Here. After what fashion? After what pattern? As the name of God is made and acknowledged as holy, where? In heaven. You've already sung about that this morning. How is God's name hallowed or declared in heaven? Well, you heard the angels, you know, falling down. You can go to Revelation as was read. You can, you can go to, to, to Isaiah 6 with the, the angels grouped around in the throne room as if to tell us, to remind us that the throne of God is the center of all activities in heaven. There is no back room where deals get struck in heaven. It all happens there before the throne of God. You even read the book of Job right? And Job's going to have all this suffering in his life. And the first chapter of Job, you get this this picture of this sort of debate going on in heaven is, well, is Job going to be faithful if he's tempted, if you take everything? Where is that happening? It's happening right in the throne room of heaven before all the hosts. God does things right out in the open for all things because God is the center. Well, that's what the prayer is wishing, that God would again become the center of things here as well. And in fact, most theologians, this is so true in heaven that most theologians, when talking about what heaven really really is, they ultimately come around to say something like, well, beyond heaven being a, whatever it is as a kind of place, whatever you know that it means, heaven is what it is primarily because it's where God is. God's presence is the thing that makes heaven what it is. As, as if you could say, and I don't know what this means, if God were to like leave heaven, Heaven would just, you know, heaven would just become a shabby suburb of somewhere, you know, of Cleveland or something. But when God is there, God's presence makes heaven what it is. You can think about, you know, I'm told that like Air Force One, you know, it's the the president's plane, is not Air Force One all the time. It's not like they paint Air Force One on the side of the jet. Well, because Air Force One is Air Force One when? When the president boards. It becomes Air Force One. If the president wants to go fly a Piper Cub somewhere out of a little airport, you know, uh, then that airplane is Air Force One for the time the president's on it. Why? Because it's the president's office and identity that makes the airplane what it is. Heaven is not dissimilar. Heaven appears to be like that. God's name, identity, and character is so strong, so visible, so holy, so central in heaven that it actually defines the place and makes it what it is. Now, there's lots of useful things we could say here about this, but I'll give you one just to tantalize you. Because we already sang this morning about sort of the day that's coming. Well, there's a marvelous thing here. If, in fact, heaven is where God is, remember your story of the Bible. Remember there was a day in the first days of the church where the Holy Spirit was poured out. We call it Pentecost. And what does that mean or what does it symbolize or what does it connote? It means that the abode of God has become where? When Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, it is a kingdom of the heart Where is the abode of God? It's here. The Spirit of God dwells within. So guess what? If heaven is where God is, you don't have to wait. It's coming, and it'll be glorious. Don't get me wrong. But you have a foretaste of it even now. Because the centrality of God, the holiness of God, which by means of the Spirit has entered the life of the Christian, if heaven is where God is, rejoice. You have already met it. You have met it in your own heart as you walk and live in the Spirit. So don't make the mistake of thinking that heaven is just a place you will one day go to. I mean, it's that nothing. It's not less than that. But in a very real sense, you have already tasted of heaven, and it has become near to us. Why? Because of the hallowing of the name of God. How then should we respond? I mean, what does this actually do to our prayers then? So this is a lot, we just did a lot of like theology. But what does it mean when you this week, as I'm going to challenge you to do, is you step out into your activities, the chaos, the headaches, the tortured existence that is you at your office or with the little kids or wherever you spend your day. What does this actually mean? Well, I would like to invite you this week to consider the following. One useful response is that When we come to God in prayer, just whenever it is, I think we have a tendency to want to use prayer primarily as a means to get stuff. And I've already told you, we are invited to come boldly and do that. But if Jesus is right here, perhaps our prayers ought to begin or ought to include something more. They ought to include that declaration that understanding, as they have already this morning in song, of who God is and what God has done in life here. So, what I'd like to invite you to do this week: you may have a prayer time already scheduled in your day, a time when you sit down and pray. If so, here's something I'd like you to consider adding to it. But if you're, you know, if you're like I'm often am and life is busy, I would like you to find, carve out a few minutes while you're commuting in the car somewhere so this week, a few minutes to just spend some time declaring to God things God already knows. God's goodness and greatness, both in your life and in the world around us. Let's pray that way. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. I don't have words to say. Well, let me give you some words. Let me show you how it works a little bit. Psalm 46 was a song written by the sons of Korah, and it's a psalm that actually spends the whole of it acknowledging God's name and greatness. I want to read it for you. It's just 11 verses very quickly, and I would like you to listen. And as as I read it, I would like you to think about what if these words were my own? What if I owned them and offered them back to God? What if they became my prayer this day? So listen, and if you will, join in making these prayers, making this prayer yours. God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake in their surging. Oh, well, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, and she will not fail. God will help her at break of day. Uh, nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. His, he lifts His voice, and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. So he says, be still and know that I am God, that I will be exalted among the nations, that I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Friend, pray like that. I don't mean manufacture a bunch of pretty language. I mean, by all means, write a poem to God. That's good stuff. But the point is, that's not, where the, that's not the point of where it lies. It's not about the sort of, can you come up with beautiful language? It's been given to us. The, the hymn book of the church. When you pray, if you don't know how or don't know what to say to God in this hallowing, this adoring of God's name, hey, take a cue. Own someone else's words. Guess what? It still counts. In fact, I can give this to you. I'd like to give you... Here's here's a list. These psalms, this list of psalms, these are all psalms like the one we just read. Psalms that have as their, as their goal... A, a declaration of who God is and what, and what it's done. Consider owning one of these psalms this week. You fill out, pull out your phone. Take a snapshot of it, you know, so you can like, remember it. If you don't have that or don't want to, just let's pick one, Psalm 111. Think three ones. Okay, you remember it now. Psalm, Psalm 111. Jesus teaches us to pray like this. God, we see what you've done. And with all the company of earth and heaven, we too rehearse and declare your greatness. The invitation that the sons of Korah have given us is still true, that in this hallowing, in this declaration, we hear the invitation to slow down, rest, reflect, worship, adore. Let the name of God grow more central in our lives more definite more real more visible let it occupy more of our thoughts let our hearts grow slowly used to rehearsing the great deeds of god and to make the disciplined choice to do this before we start asking for things we do this not because it will change god because it somehow strong arms god into doing something God wouldn't do. We don't do this because God needs it's vain, and if we don't, God will be upset. No, no, no. We do this because, as Jesus teaches us, it is simply who God is. It is what God deserves. I don't always know or understand how prayer changes the world around us. I don't know how God takes my prayers and your prayers and manipulates the events of the world to bring about things. I know, you know, that's, there's mystery. I don't get that, but there's one thing I know beyond all else. When I pray, when I adore God, one thing does change. me. Can I pray with you this morning? Our Father in heaven, you alone are good. You alone are holy. You alone are strong. And I pray for my brothers and sisters even now in this week that you might be present with them as a loving Father, that you would give us the strength to declare to the nations your greatness, your goodness, your power, your mercy, and your grace. Remind us that you have not left us to wander the world alone, but you, by your Spirit, have taken up residence in our hearts, and you bid us come come and make our requests come and find peace father in the declaration of your goodness and greatness this week I pray that my brothers and sisters here will experience that that they will receive rest in the name of Christ we pray